Hi, everybody. My name is Ben. And I'm from Windsor. They say that you guys are only going to remember the first thing and the last thing I tell you. No, we haven't started yet. We're going to start like now. So remember this thing, all right? We come from an Anabaptist tradition. And the last thing, we come from an Anabaptist tradition. The word means rebaptizers. Okay? This is the tradition we're coming out of. Mennonites from this fine college, Hutterites, Swiss brethren, Swiss brethren, these are all people that come from that Anabaptist tradition. What it really means is a baptism of believers. Okay? Because at the time that we started, everyone was being baptized as a little baby. And no one was getting baptized as an adult. So that whole adult baptism thing, we kind of reformed and came into that. So that's the first and the last thing. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story. I don't know exactly how we can make this interactive any more so than if I use a word or if I talk about something you don't understand, just stop me and ask a question. Okay? Most of you have been in Sunday school classes that I've taught, so you can, you, you can just stop me and ask. Um, because I'm going to tell you a story now of where we came from. So I'm not going to ask a lot of questions, so you guys have to stop me if you don't get something. Okay? Our story begins in the early 1500s. The Catholic Church is the world's biggest superpower. Okay? They're above the law. You can't take a Catholic priest to court. They can murder. They can steal. They can do whatever you, they want. And you can't take them to court. You can take them to like the church court, but that was all corrupt anyways. The Catholic Church is over all of the kingdoms of the world. So the king of Germany, France, England, these guys are all kind of, at this point, underneath the Catholic Church. That's the height of power that they've come to. But unfortunately, it's incredibly, incredibly corrupt. But let me give you a little bit of background to this. We're going to go quickly through this. For the last 200 years, okay, the church has seen its darkest times. For a while, there were actually two popes. Both thought the other one was an unbeliever and all his followers were going to hell. And the church was completely split. That lasted for about 60 years. For about 100 years, the French were so powerful that they bought themselves a pope, and the pope was pretty much doing whatever the king of France wanted him to, and they actually moved the Vatican, moved the Holy See, moved the center of power of all Christianity, moved the center of faith to France. At this time, France is at war with England. Okay? And your taxes to the church are more expensive than your taxes to your government. So imagine this now. All these people in England are paying these huge taxes to the church, and they're sending all this to France, who they're at war with, and then the French Pope 
is giving all this money to the French army to go fight England with again. So the English were actually paying their enemies to come and fight them. This is how messed up things had gotten. So by the time we wake up in the 1500s, to call someone a priest or a clergy member was actually an insult because they were so morally and everything corrupt. No one has a Bible to read. You guys know and have more experience with the word of God than the average church priest. None of them read the Bible. It wasn't available. So at the time where we're waking up now, the church was a mockery. The way it came together was a bunch of these Turkish guys called the Moors came over and tried to make war with all of Europe. That brought everybody together so we'd fight them. So now what happens? We're fighting these Turkish guys and everybody's given money to one pope now. We got one pope again. Everybody's given him money and we hit the Renaissance. The pope wants to make Rome glorious again, like it was back in the days of the Caesars. So he's spending all of this money on the best artists of the day. Da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo, they're all brought to Rome at this time. They're brought there to paint the Sistine Chapel, to paint the papal apartments. But most importantly for our story, they're building St. Peter's Church. It was meant to be the biggest, greatest church in the world. But the Pope still didn't have enough money. So he did one of the worst things that the Catholic Church, worst ideas they ever came up with, because this is really what started the whole Reformation in our story. He started selling something that were called indulgences. You see, the Catholics didn't believe in baptism like we have it. It wasn't that you were convicted by God, that you were a sinner, and that you repented and came to God. The way the Catholics believed things at this time was that the church was a depository of grace. That because of Mary and the saints, that they were so good that the church kind of had a pool of grace and it could give it to whomever it wished to. So you didn't, have to, you didn't have to go through this whole repentance and adult baptism process. You just kind of had to be baptized as an infant and take mass. Do you understand what, the difference, what we're going at here? They, you, you didn't choose to follow God. You didn't repent. You didn't have a personal relationship with God. What you had was someone telling you you were born in the church, if you, if you pay me and you follow some rules, you're going to go to heaven. But the church needs more money. And they had this crazy idea called purgatory. It comes from books of the Bible that we don't actually study. And purgatory was this deal where after you died, because you weren't perfect, you went through some period of punishment. You, you know, rolled around, were in fighter for a while, you were beaten up for a while, until you'd been purged of all the bad things you did in your life. 
So when you were mean to your mom, or when you got upset, or when you didn't do so well on a test, all that stuff kind of added up on a checklist. And if you did good stuff, that kind of added up on a different checklist. And then whatever your balance was, however bad you were, that's how long you had to spend in purgatory. And because they needed money, the church came up with this idea that they would sell you indulgences. That if you paid them, the Pope would decide, out of the kindness of his heart, to dispense some grace on you so that you wouldn't have to spend all this time in purgatory. So they were selling these things. So you could buy it for your dead grandma so that she wouldn't have to suffer in purgatory for a while. She's already dead, but you can buy her an indulgence. You can buy it for you. You can buy it for your mom. You can buy it for anybody you want. And the cost of the indulgence depended on how much money you had. So people like Martin Luther are looking at these indulgences and going, this can't be right. People are coming to Rome and they're seeing that there are uh, brothels just for clergy members. The, the people that were in the church weren't allowed to marry at this time, so they would keep women on the side. Some of the popes had children. So rather than allowing their members to get married, they were allowing them to live in sin. And everybody knew this and everybody saw this. And the, po the, the, the clergy members were always seen in the taverns. They were always seen fighting and yelling and cursing and stuff. Like, not all of them, but a lot of them. So that the people just looked at the church and said, if there is a God, this cannot be the way he wants us to serve him. But they didn't know any different. There's no other churches and there's no Bible. So what happens is some people that have access to the scriptures start reading them and start seeing, oh my goodness, the Bible never talks about a pope. It never talks about indulgences. It never talks about any of these things. So things start to change. People start to seek a personal relationship with God. It's a time of upheaval, though. Like 70,000 plus people in Germany died. Lots of other people in other countries died. But at this time is when the first sparks of our church start to happen. When, when we looked out and saw that this could not possibly be the way that God wants to be served, people started to seek something new. They started to read the Bible for the first time. The printing press had been out, so they're starting to get them out. So people are starting to read the Bible for themselves. And what they're seeing and what they're getting to is a completely different picture than what the church had at the time. And what do they see? They see that Christ is calling out to have a personal relationship with them that he doesn't want them to come through a bunch of priests and a pope, that he wants to come into their lives. They see that salvation is more than what they had been offered so far. So people like Menno Simons and Conrad Grable start to preach an adult baptism. 
they start to talk against an infant baptism. Now what you must understand is that for hundreds of years, this meant death. There are only two things that the church could kill you for. If you denied the Trinity, and if you got rebaptized as an adult. And you have to remember that the church and the state, the government, were one body at this time. So when the church wanted to kill you, you got killed. So when our faith started, when the Anabaptists started to baptize people as adults, the people that decided to be baptized were basically saying, I would rather die than not have Christ in my life. And they were killed. And they were killed horribly and gruesomely. But they started to read. They started to see. Mino Simons was a minister in the Catholic Church, let's say. And he's looking at what he's doing in the Catholic Church, distributing Mass. You guys don't really know what Mass is, but we practice something called the Holy Supper, where we drink wine and we eat some bread in remembrance of Christ. The bread is supposed to symbolize Christ's body, the wine his blood. Now, at this time, Mino Simons is administering this Mass, and this Mass is not the Holy Supper, but rather symbolic of a sacrifice, a crucifying of Christ anew. And when he's reading the Bible, and he, and he, and he realizes what he's doing by this, he's, he's completely shooken up. He's doing something completely unholy. And he's shocked by it. And these other ministers are shocked by it when they start reading the Scriptures. And what happens is they separate themselves from the state church. What happens is because Christ is speaking to them through the Bible, they start to follow Christ rather than the example of the church at the time. And nobody, but nobody from the church likes this. They make special police to hunt out Anabaptists that are meant to seek these. Even the reformers, the people that just broke off from the big Catholic church like Luther and Swinley and all these guys, even they're trying to kill the Anabaptists because why? Nobody can hold, the Christians can't hold power over the masses unless they can force all these infants to be baptized. There's no way to have a state church. There's no way to make sure that everyone in the country is a Christian unless you baptize them as a child. But as a child... The baby doesn't know anything. The baby can't make a decision. The baby can't have any faith. So rather than live like this, rather than live without a proper baptism, our early church fathers decided to be killed in all sorts of ways, but have that baptism. They knew that the whole country was never going to be Christian. This was an idea that, that, that shook the world at the time. In, in the Catholic Encyclopedia today, they'll say that our church, Anabaptists, in complete disproportion to their numbers, was the influence that they had on the world. 
this adult baptism, this living by the example of Jesus Christ were all things that were reintroduced to the world through the deaths of the people that brought your church to you. Let's fast forward to about 1803. 4th of July. Samuel Frelich is born. He's from an old French family. The Napoleonic Wars have just finished. Okay? It's about, what, 200 years ago from today. Uh, He's brought up in the state church, which is very uh, Calvinistic. I don't know if that means too much to the 13-year-olds here, but uh, it meant that uh, the church believed that some people were chosen to be in the kingdom of heaven, and there was nothing they could do. They were going to be Christians, and some people weren't. And you were either lucky or you weren't. And he, he's, he's raised in this type of an environment. And he's, he's going through the same things that, that the earlier Anabaptists are going through. He, he sees all sorts of problems in his state church, that they're not living according to the Bible specifically. And you know what he does then? He sees a bunch of these Anabaptists that are living and dying for their faith. And he's reading his scriptures. And he says, I can't live like this anymore. I need to give my heart completely to Jesus or else I won't be able to live anymore. So, this is how our specific church starts. It's not that Frelich dreams up anything new. It's not that he comes up with the things that we believe. What happens is that he sees a bunch of these Anabaptists that are living a life that he wants. He sees that they're living according to the Holy Scriptures, and he starts to organize them. And how are they living different from the world, from the state church? They're being baptized as adults. They're living a very simple life. What else do they have? They have... Something called pacifism. This is another reason why they were getting killed all the time. They didn't believe that we could bear arms. One of the hallmarks of our church is that we looked at Jesus Christ and how he lived and made our example after that. So while other churches were saying it's only the Bible and they would use the Bible to come up with rationalizations for why they could do certain things. Anabaptists typically looked at Jesus Christ and said, how did he live? And tried to model themselves. So they saw him living a poor life. He didn't have a lot of money. He didn't ever bear arms. He didn't ever fight. He he, he, he was asking people to be baptized as adults. He lived with a focus and a devotion. The things he did had meaning. And so they tried to model themselves after that. So we have Frelick here 
doing an incredible 15 years of organizing people. He's incredible at getting people excited. He's incredible at knowing what the audience needs to hear. And he shakes up the populace. You gotta understand a couple things. He's coming around in Switzerland, right? What does Switzerland look like? Is it flat? What does it look like? Shout something out. Somebody. Mountains. Okay. It's 1800-something. Is it easy to travel through the mountains in winter? Okay. They didn't have a big transportation system. So, early Anabaptism, fairly too, probably would have been persecuted a whole lot more if the authorities could get to them. I mean, everybody, the whole government thought Frelick was a big troublemaker. But they couldn't get to him all the time because it was so mountainous and he was moving around a lot and doing a lot of missionary journeys. And eventually they kicked him out of the country and he had to go back to France. But in 15 years, he organized and started up what grew into our church. Okay? And he suffered a lot of stuff. Dumb stuff, like stuff you guys wouldn't even understand now. For example, he got married, but he didn't get married in the state church. He got married in our church. But because he didn't get married in the state church, the government didn't recognize his marriage. So the government thought that he was living in sin, and so they threw all sorts of problems at him. They wouldn't recognize his children. His children were all illegitimate. They wouldn't let him do a bunch of stuff. They wouldn't let him take citizenship. You remember, the, the state and, and the church are quite wed together right now. And they gave him all sorts of problems for this. He couldn't even like, move to other countries because they wouldn't give him a passport for his wife. They, they made him suffer. They kicked him out of towns. They chased him around. But the gospel was going out. And two locksmiths came from Hungary to around Switzerland. And they bump into Frelick. And they're convinced of this gospel. They take it back to Hungary. They tell some people about it. And the church explodes. Hungary and Yugoslavia at this time it's like the wild, wild west. The, the Moors and the Muslims had gone back. Okay? So there's not a lot of government here. And people are given land by the Austro-Hungarian Empire for free. And there's not people telling you what to believe. So we spread like wildfire all throughout Hungary and Yugoslavia. Tolstoy, the author, says that we have, before the First World War about 120,000 members in Yugoslavia alone. The Yugoslavian government at the time said we had about 300,000 because they were scared of us. So what do you need to remember? Before the First World War, we had more members by far than now. But do you remember what I told you? Anabaptists in general had two basic principles. Other than adult baptism, they believed in separation from the world and pacifism. So when 
the First World War came around, our elders told the congregations that they couldn't fight in it. The government said you have to. The elders said you can't. The people started to suffer because the government was trying to push them into fighting. The other problem was we wouldn't swear. We wouldn't take oaths. When the Bible says, you will, thou shalt not swear, but let your yea be nay and your nay be nay, we took that seriously. The government said, before we go to war, you're all going to have to swear allegiance to the crown. A lot of our members couldn't take this. A lot of them left. By the time the first world rolled around, our membership had dropped 20, 30,000 from 120 plus. By the time the first world was done, by the time the second world war was done, we were down to about 10,000. So people love to tell you that the church grows under persecution. It's not that it grows under persecution, it's that it changes under persecution. It's that it solidifies its belief and a lot of people that didn't really believe the whole of the doctrine of the church leave. So what, what, what do we see so far? Let's quickly recap. Okay? In the early 1500s, the whole of Europe is pretty much one church. But the church is, is disgustingly corrupt. And everybody can see it. People start reading the Bible for themselves. People start coming to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ rather than going through a bunch of intermediaries. People start seeing, look, we're saved by faith in Christ Jesus. We're saved by what Jesus did, not by the church telling us, hey, you're saved because I say you're saved. We have people that are willing to die for this. We have people that are shaking up what's going on, but there's not a lot of them. Our membership really starts to blossom in Yugoslavia and Hungary from our church uh, just before the First World War. We have some in Germany as well. We have some in Switzerland. And an interesting thing you should know is that the Swiss elders, right, at the time of Frelich and on, right, these were all people that had been in the Anabaptist church for a really long time. They were the ones that kind of, uh, after Frelich left, took, took the reins and started uh, sharing and governing and teaching everybody. So we lose a lot of people in the First World War. We lose a lot of people in the Second World War. Um, and I want to explain to you, I want to explain to you what happened with our relationship with the sister church. Back in the 1800s, right, we, got, we have Frelich here. He's going all over the place teaching people. And there's a bunch of Mennonites and, and Anabaptists that are already in America. They're already here. And they're running into some trouble. And one of them hears about this guy called Frelich, who's over in Europe. And they send him a letter and ask him to come over there and help. But Frelich can't come, so he sends another elder who comes here, and he starts working with certain groups of 
Mennonites, and Anabaptists that are already here in America. Okay? They were already here. They were of our same tradition. But they started working with this elder. Years later, Nazarenes, or New Evangelical Baptists, which we were called in Europe, started to come to America. We started to go to these churches, which we were associated with. But what happened was we had a lot of differences in the way we did things. It wasn't that we were different in what we believed. It was that we were different in the way we would uh, worship on Sunday or some of the clothes we would wear or little things like that. And there were different people that were in charge in Europe and different people that were in charge here. So what happened was people started to butt heads and the church kind of split up between the immigrants that came from Europe and the people that were already here before we got here. So it wasn't that like we all came over from Europe together and that we started fighting amongst ourselves and split. It's that there was already a long-standing tradition here. And then a bunch of us Nazarenes came over and we kind of just kept our identity there. So, what have we talked about? I've given you a brief, brief story, skipped over a lot of parts of that story. But, as I said, the first thing and the last thing is that we're Anabaptists. Um, so the sister church were the people that were here already? They were Anabaptists that had moved long before Frelich was around and had been, there's been a church there. And then they called him and asked for some help and he sent them an elder, okay? And then Frelich's congregations that he had started in Europe they started coming over later, and that's who we come out of. Are there any other questions before I start proceeding? Anybody else got a question? I know that some of this might not be all that interesting. And I know that it doesn't seem like it's incredibly exciting. However, people that came before you chose to die rather than not live these things. They died because they wanted a believer's baptism. Because they wanted to be baptized as Christ had commanded. They died because they wanted a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They didn't want to go through a bunch of rituals and traditions that were meaningless to them. They wanted a real 
an active relationship with Christ. They died because they wouldn't take oaths, because the Bible asked them not to. They died because they wouldn't fight, because they saw Jesus as a pacifist. So what about today? I mean, it's quite possible that very nearly a lot of us are going to have to be, a lot of us are going to have to stand up for that or not stand up for it. We're going to be called to fight, possibly. We've lived for generations without having to face any of these things that the people had to die for before. It's a brief story. I'm not going to belabor it anymore. We'll, we'll end here. And the first and the last thing I wanted you to remember were that we came out of this Anabaptist tradition. We came out of a tradition where everybody had access to Christ. We come out of a tradition where your repentance needs to be meaningful, where your life needs to be consistent. And we came out of a tradition that when we started, we were so on fire for Christ. We were so sharing the gospel with, every, with, with the whole world. And it was new again. And it was life to people. We, came out, we come out of a tradition where we've shown time and time again that we would rather die than not live for the things we believe in, that they were that important to us. And that's all I have to say. So we're going to end early, and that's okay. You guys are all free to go. Can I just make one, one comment? Go for it. influence that the Anabaptists have had is that Christianity or not being a Christian is your choice. It's not forced upon you by the point of a gun or a sword. It is your choice. It is your choice to repent. It is your choice not to repent.
their consequences for rejecting God and into the world. Consequences maybe having an easy life here on earth, but facing the wrath of God now. It is your soul. Make the right decision. Ben, I have one other question for you. Oh, and you started the forum by saying, you know, people ask you what church you're from, you say, I'm from the AC, and I knew him, and they say, well, what's the AC? And he said, well, we don't do this, we don't do that, we don't do this. And you kind of gave a history of where our church came from. In light of this forum, if people ask us, where do you, you know, what church do you go to, and you say the AC, they what in the world is that? How would you, how would you, uh, how would you, how would you expect um, people to respond? That, that, that we believe in a believer's baptism, which is a baptism by choice, after repentance, that we believe very strongly in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that our church has always held to pacifism and that our church has always modeled ourselves after the life of Jesus Christ. If I would typify our church, it would be by those things that we believe in a believer's baptism after repentance that we believe in pacifism, and that we believe in, as, did you, I don't want to ramble, I just want to, uh, very specifically, Brother Dave, what would be your response? My response? Yes. I would be pretty much like yours. I would say that, first of all, there's a priesthood of all believers, that we don't make a distinction among the brothers and sisters. Uh, we accept the scriptures only. Uh, so we've been, uh, we really stress learning uh, those issues. Uh, the believer's baptism, and that's, that's a big issue, although many Christian churches today would believe the same thing, to be baptized people essentially as adults, as opposed to as children or even babies. Uh, but the, the repentance that goes along with that, and perhaps, you know, that's a start, but continued growth after that, living a sanctified life, in a sense a separate life in some ways, that we're very careful about what aspects of the world we allow into our lives and what we follow and do not follow. 
and many people, you know, they find that a little too narrow for them. And then, you know, you talk about the other positives. I mean, during the war, Vietnam War, okay, most young people here don't know anything or very little about that. But some of us lived through that time. It was a great time for witnessing and to be a conscientious objector at a time when, you know, I got it on religious grounds, not upon the grounds of, uh, because I was just against the war. I had reasons for being against not only that war, but all war. And so um, there's, I guess the, you made the point, I think, very well, that there's a long history of this thing. It's not unique to our church. There are millions of people in this country, albeit small millions, that believe very similarly to what we do. And, uh, but there's that, that heavy reliance upon scripture, the born-again experience, being a regenerate, a new person in Christ, and then living like a new person in Christ. You don't just go back into your old lifestyle. We take that life seriously. And as you indicated, you know, people have been willing to become martyrs for that sort of faith. And that's a very important <coughs> I want to leave you guys with the idea that, look, we didn't pop out of nowhere. We do come out of, there were always pockets of people that uh, believed in, I can't say they believed in the Word of God and the Bible, because until the Reformation really happened, the average person couldn't, didn't have access to that. That's something that's very new. For example, Martin Luther didn't read the New Testament till very late in his life. It was only at certain universities. And then they started... See, the big deal about the Reformation was... See, people were arguing about this stuff for, for thousands of years already. But they argued about it in Latin. And the common person didn't know what was going on. So when the Reformation happened, when, when our Anabaptist forefathers really started organizing and started getting this out, the big deal was that they spoke in the language of the people, that they translated the Bible into a language that people could read. That's why this all exploded. And the only reason it happened was because the, the, this, the world's church had gotten so corrupt that people said, this couldn't possibly be the way God wants to be served. So people started reading the Bible for themselves, just as you should. If you're not convicted from the scriptures, if you're not spoken to by the Holy Spirit from those scriptures, then if, if the Holy Spirit isn't doing something inside of you, then the stuff I tell you to do or the stuff your minister tells you to do might be nice morally, but you're not being saved from the inside out. And that's, that's a big deal for our church. Um, yes, our church practiced separation from the world for hundreds of years. And what that meant was sometimes they formed communities off to the side. Uh, they didn't do anything with other people. They just lived amongst themselves. And yes, uh, they lived a simple life traditionally where they would wear very plain clothes and they wouldn't um, buy anything expensive because materialism was always the, the enemy of our church. Um, Yes, they did many things that made them visibly different than the other Christians. 
And today, how is our separation from the world today? How are we different from the world at large today? It's a tough, tough concept to get around because you go to school with, with people that aren't from your church, most of you. You hang out at the same mall. You play the same sports. I mean, you should know that, you know, in Furley's time, that was all, and even before, that was all different. But um, we're separate from the world today by where, we're, where we get our influence from, by what forms our desires. So if, if all of your desires are being formed by what you see on TV, by what you think is popular, if none of your desires are being formed by the Word of God, by preaching, then I submit that you're not holding that separation from the world. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? Do you kind of get it? Because I'm not asking us to start wearing incredibly simple clothing or to, or to not go to school or to start wearing a uniform or something like that or to not play sports anymore. But we do have to practice separation from the world somehow. And what I'm trying to express to you is that if you would allow your desires and your heart to be formed more and more by the Bible, you'd be practicing that separation from the world. So the first and the last thing is, you guys come out of a long tradition of Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers, which originally was a big time insult, but we kind of took it to heart. So it meant adult baptism. And you come out of a tradition which really stresses a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is probably why we fight so much. Like really, if you look at Anabaptists historically, we have more divisions and more infighting and more angriness at each other than any other faith. But that kind of stems from the beautiful fact that we really stress that we want each member to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Does anybody else have any comments or anything they want to share or ask? Anybody have anything they've always wondered about? Why does our church do that or this? Anybody ever go, I totally don't understand why we do that or where this came from? Why do we have ministers that don't go to school? Or why do we... Uh... No? Okay. I told you we'd be short today. Just wanted you to know a couple of things that you're, you, didn't, you didn't just fall off the face of the, the moon or something 200 years ago. Okay. Have a good day.